Welcome back to the Harvard Center for International Development's weekly speaker series podcast. This week, we're joined by the Right Honorable Andrew Mitchell, member of the UK Parliament for Royal Sutton Coldfield and visiting fellow at the Center for International Development. He is here today discussing the causes and consequences of Brexit. I'm sitting down with Andrew after his appearance in the CID speaker series at Harvard Kennedy School on January 31st, 2020. So today's a bit auspicious. It just happens to be Brexit day for the UK. And in roughly four or five hours, the UK is going to officially exit the European Union. So what's the significance of this day for the UK and also the significance for the EU? Well, it's a very significant day. It's significant not because it's the end of the process, uh, but it is at least the beginning of the end of the process. And as a result of the momentous decisions made in the referendum, in spite of three and a half years of paralysis, Britain has finally got its act together. The Prime Minister has a pretty unassailable majority and Britain leaves the EU tonight. The consequence, of course, of this is that trade deals will have to be negotiated and they obviously need to be negotiated with the United States. Progress, I think, already being made on that. But um, above all, half our trade is with the 27 members of the European Union. So uh, we will need to have a, a deal there. The choices verge from the Norwegian model, where Norway effectively has many of the advantages of being a member of the European Union, but they don't, aren't able to take part in any of the decisions. So decision makers in Norway are subject to the decisions that are made by the European Union. They have their noses pressed up, if you like, against the window of the negotiating room, but they are not part of those discussions, at least not directly part of those discussions. And then on at the other end of the scale, there's the World Trade Organization rules, the WTO rules, but, but that's a pretty primitive deal if we're reliant on that. So somewhere in the middle, over the next 11 months, I hope that a, a good deal can be done. And a good deal, of course, is one that both sides are content with. It will be in everyone's interest that it should be a deal that everyone is content with, because I don't think it's likely that Britain will rejoin the European Union, even in a generation. And I think that the institutional memory within the European Union will be such that the words of General de Gaulle back in the 60s will ring in their ears that Britain is not a natural member of the European Union, certainly not a natural member of the United States of Europe, which is where the inner core are heading. So I think over the next 11 months, it is possible to do a deal. It's the one I think is most likely will be what is usually based upon the deal that the EU did with Canada, what in Britain is referred to as Canada plus plus. And I think it'll, it'll lie somewhere around that. But uh, the ability to do a deal, you know, people say that it can't be done in 11 months. The European Union has said it can't be done in 11 months. But that's not true. The speed at which you can do this deal depends upon political will. And if there is the political will on both sides to do a deal in the next 11 months, then a deal can be done. I'm glad that you brought up these time horizons for them to make a new deal and kind of talked or alluded to at least a little bit, maybe some hard feelings that have to be overcome potentially between the UK and continental Europe to actually arrive at a deal. And well, so there's hard, de there's hard feelings within the UK mm -hmm. as well as between the UK and the EU. And feelings are very raw inside the, the uh, UK. And you know, I hope uh, tonight, I shall be here in Harvard, but I hope that tonight when we leave, <laughs> the, there will be no triumphalism because it's very important that those who willed Brexit respect the fact that more than 16 million people 
many of whom feel very strongly voted against it. But equally, it's important that those who are appalled that we are leaving the European Union, they respect the democratic mandate and understand that if you have a referendum and if people vote to leave, that really has to be respected in a mature democracy. Yeah, it's interesting. Or in any democracy, actually. <laughs> mature or not. Yeah, of course. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the dynamic of having to internally find some resolution before you can move forward with external resolution in these trade negotiations that are coming up. What do you think, outside of maybe overcoming that internal strife, do you think are some of the big challenges to negotiating a successful agreement over the next 11 months? And what does a successful agreement look like to you? You kind of mentioned the Canada Plus Plus and maybe some additional considerations for the automotive industry when you were talking earlier today. Then the difficulties really are that the EU is subject to four key freedoms, the freedom to move capital, freedom of movement by people, and freedom of movement for goods and services. And, you know, if you're not a member of the European Union, you don't get those freedoms. And if you are a member, you have to abide by them. It's part of the difficulties that emerged in the negotiations about immigration. Um, so, so we have to be clear that in addition to that, the members of the European Union, uh, particularly France, but also Germany, are keen to demonstrate that if you're not in the European Union, you don't get all the advantages. And that's understandable because otherwise everyone will leave the European Union and the, this great structure that was set up by our forefathers would, would collapse. So the question is, what is the deal which Britain can secure, which leaves the European Union content that their freedoms are not being breached and that, and that there's clearly an advantage for being in the European Union, but on the Britain side means that we get a free trade agreement and an arrangement which we can live with. And then we can get on with working together. We have huge things in common, tackling climate change, security, dealing with these big problems of protectionism, terrorism, migration, pandemics, very currently topical. You know, we need to work together. And Britain's not leaving Europe. It's leaving the European Union, but it's still a great European power. And we need to work together. But the key to unlocking all of that is to have a good deal which satisfies both parties. And that's what the politicians and the trade negotiators got to work towards. If the UK is able to overcome this tension in the negotiations between looking internally to national self-interest, as well as the EU's interest in disincentivizing other countries leaving the Union, and they arrive at some agreement, if you look in your crystal ball, kind of what do you see as some of the major changes for the average British citizen, for better or for worse, after these negotiations are completed? Well, the negotiations are about minimising those differences and making sure that the changes are not seen by Britons as deleterious. So, for example, I think that you know our children want to be able to have the advantage not only of what the Erasmus programme gave, but of being able to go to and from Europe and feel that they are part of, of Europe. There are huge links across the European continent. And therefore... You know, borders, one wants to uh, affect that as little as possible. And on the Erasmus programme, it's very important to some of my younger constituents, particularly. We need something to replace that, which gives the same advantage to the next generation that past generations have had. So it's really like that. It's to, it's to ensure, for example, that the continuity of supply and trade, which I talked about during my lecture, 
is not unnecessarily impeded. That may mean there needs to be more sophisticated electronic apparatus at borders. But at the end of the day, we want people to be able to move between borders as easily as possible. I remember how easy it has been to move between Switzerland and the European Union across that that border near Geneva Airport. And we need to make sure that those sort of systems are replicated now in so far as we possibly can. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you talk about a concentrated effort to sort of minimize the bad things that could potentially happen from the separation and make sure that the good things sort of continue. But obviously, this is a big change. Do you think there's any expectation among people that there's going to be some sort of major positive change following Brexit, following the completion of these negotiations? In Britain? In Britain, yes. I think there's a lot of nervousness around. I think there's there's certainly the government is seeking to induce and promote a feeling of self-confidence that we're getting back our borders, our money and our laws. And, you know, within the British political firmament, People attach greater or lesser importance to that, but but you know we're leaving these the so-called tenets of sovereignty will be now more significant, but, and I think there is a nervousness around. But but it's now down to the negotiations and to see whether or not we can conclude relatively speedily negotiations which set us on a mutually agreeable track, and that is the key. And and the answer to your question is that the success of those negotiations will mean that people don't see enormous changes in their daily lives and that where those changes do take place they regard them as an acceptable deal Mm. for the regaining of quote-unquote sovereignty. So we've been talking a little bit about what the immediate consequences are of Brexit but I'd like to kind of go back a little bit to what got us to this point in the first place and as you mentioned there's a very tight vote 52% to 48% to exit the European Union and you mentioned some of the recent political changes since then, some of a, somewhat of a maybe demographic shift towards younger voters, which may vote in a different way, but then also the fact that there's a large Conservative Party majority that supports Boris Johnson now. So do you think that that vote, as it played out in 2016, still broadly reflects the will of the people in terms of this action? Or do you think it's a product of the specific political conditions and what was happening at the time? Yes, it's an interesting question. I mean, certainly the demographics, as I set out in my lecture, uh, suggest that an older cohort have been coming to the end of their lives and a younger cohort has been approaching the age of voting and that that would tilt the result today. I think that's undeniable. Um, But equally, you know, I've had a lot of people say to me that the paralysis of the last three and a half years has meant that although they voted to remain, were they to be asked to vote again, they would vote to leave because they find the paralysis undermining of the democratic decision and they don't like it and they think that uh, the paralysis marks a failure and they want to be more emphatic and that they would vote to leave. Others have said that they didn't realise when they voted to leave what the consequences would be and certainly there's been some movement away from that vote back to remaining. But you know, I don't think that the polling and the sophology suggest that either of those two trends is definitive. So I suspect that we remain a country more or less 50-50 divided. 
Yeah, I suppose if they, we could say for certain what the outcome of the elections would be, there'd be really no use for the elections in the first place or referendum in the first no, place, right? No, no, but, but you see, the, the, the result, which frankly surprised people in Britain, a strong Conservative majority, 80, which we haven't had since 1987, when mm-hmm. I was first elected to the House of Commons, that suggests to me that Brexit was the defining feature of this election. The very left-wing Bernie Sanders-type policies that Jeremy Corbyn and the Labour Party were extolling, that certainly had an effect. But the, the most memorable part of the general election is these Labour seats that voted Conservative in the northeast and in the Midlands, particularly around where I am, where we won a large number of seats, which have always been Labour. And so paradoxically, in a way, Boris Johnson has united the country because he's brought (laughs) these seats into the Conservative firm, very different seats to those traditionally held by the Conservative Party. And they've come because of Brexit. They've come because they want Brexit delivered. They don't like the way, as they would see it, an elite, a smug, self-satisfied elite, principally in London, has stolen their vote. And, And so Brexit was a defining issue during this general election. And it does suggest a degree of frustration with the politicians and the Remain tendency of the British establishment, which the election has clearly thrown into uh, disrepute. I'd like to talk maybe a little bit more about that frustration with the status quo and the establishment. And I recall reading an article not that long ago about the Nissan Sunderland plant that you mentioned in your discussion earlier today. And essentially the framing of the article was such that Brexit will have very strong negative economic consequences for the plant, especially with relation to the supply chain. However, most of the people who actually worked at the plant view Brexit as basically a positive thing for themselves and for the UK. And kind of tying that into the frustration you're talking about, do you have an explanation or thoughts on this sort of contradiction in how it can be economically bad for your job, but be good for you personally? Do you know, it's, I remember very clearly, because I followed, as I was a parliamentary candidate in 1983 in Sunderland, and at that stage, you know, there wasn't a particular celebration about the car industry coming there. There wasn't a realisation of what it would mean. Um, there was great anger with the Conservative government and Mrs Thatcher, a great feeling that the pits had shut and the shipyards, I mean, Sunderland had two massive shipyards, uh, Austin and Pickersgill and Sunderland Shipbuilders, all of which were, within a matter of a few years, shut. Thousands and thousands of people losing their jobs. And the, the anger was directed at the Conservative government, Mrs Thatcher, for, for doing all of that. And then, some, then Nissan came and the position was absolutely transformed in the way I set out in my lecture. And I remember during the, the referendum, exactly the poll that you have just alluded to took place. And Nissan made it clear to its workforce up in Washington and Sunderland that if the decision was made to leave the European Union, this would prejudice their jobs. And the polling showed very clearly afterwards that the uh, many of the people there, not all, but many of the people there felt that uh, that was not something which would affect their decision to vote to leave. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, I think it was partly a disbelief. They didn't really believe it. And I think it was partly this very strong feeling of having been left behind by this established southern-based, London-centric establishment. And they wanted out. And, and you see it too in Lincolnshire and parts of Norfolk, where the seasonal agricultural workers, upon which the prosperity of those areas depend, in those areas, nevertheless, were some of the highest vote leave voting parts of Britain. 
Okay, it's partly because they don't believe the economic effects will be done, and they may be right about that, but it's partly because of the principle, the strongly held view that they want, in the words of the time, their country back. You know, it's not something which I think is entirely logical, but it was very strongly felt. When you're talking about the feeling that the economic effects may not be as dire as maybe predicted initially, that just reminded me of that joke about if you get 100 economists in a room, you'll get 100 different opinions, basically. So yeah, I, I think it's one of those situations where time will really tell. Yeah, um, you always, you, it's always better to have a one-handed economist, because then they can't say, on the one hand this and on the other hand that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I haven't heard that one before. That's pretty good. <laughs> but um Kind of zooming out a little bit and looking at the European Union as an institution, what do you think has been some of its successes and failures? And do you think that kind of leading up to this, going back to that theme we were discussing a little while ago, is there some way in which they could have acted with the, in their relationship internally when the UK was still part of the EU, or still is technically right now, will be a part later today, that Brexit would not have occurred? Yes, I think if David Cameron had been successful in negotiating the changes he wanted and been able to sell them in the UK, David Cameron's a very good salesman, had he been able to come back and say that I've negotiated these changes, this is what Britain needs, this is a great success, this shows that Britain can operate within the European Union successfully, then I think the position would have been different. Also, remember, he, he said to the European Union members that he thought he could win this. So they didn't, that didn't give them a huge incentive to make a lot of concessions uh, to him. And in the end, you know, for Britain, the European Union was about the economic advantages. It was about the single market. It was that extraordinary moment when Mrs Thatcher forced through the Single Market Act through the British Parliament, with a lot of the right of her party very much against it. Because she said, this is a fantastic trading arrangement for us. You know, no borders, free trade, and we want it, and we benefit from it. And of course, we have benefited hugely from that. But for the French and the Germans particularly, and remember that the European Union, you know, the, the carriage, if you like, is French, but the horsemen drawing the carriage are German. That is the engine, if you like, of the European Union. For them... This is about making sure that Europe never fights again, Europe never starves again. It is, it is deeply ingrained, a move towards a United States of Europe, deepening the current position, which, to which Britain is antipathetic. Britain does not want that. We are a proud nation state, an island state, and we do not want to be part of a single currency, and we do not want to be part of a United States of Europe. And many of those who try to find arguments to defend the decision to hold the referendum, point to the fact that you might have been able not to have had a referendum for a bit, but the lesson of Nigel Farage's leadership of the Let's Get Britain Out campaign is that this was an explosion that was going to come before long, and if it hadn't happened back in 2016, it would have happened not long after. Do you think that outside of the UK's relationship with the rest of Europe, that Brexit signals anything or will have an effect on the role the UK plays in international cooperation and development or military cooperation, any of those factors that may be unexpected or expected? No, I think that, that, that in all those areas, Britain will be a good international citizen. We are, after all, still a leading power in Europe. We, we probably have the second or third most effective military in the world. We have one of only 
two or three comprehensive diplomatic services. And while the United States is a military superpower, I think people here throughout would say that Britain has been in the past a development superpower. And, you know, Britain's contribution wiring together development, diplomacy and defence will continue. Uh, Also through NATO, Britain is the second leading member of NATO after the United States. We are a leading member of the Commonwealth of Nations, which of course is a very much a South as well as a North organisation. And we're one of the permanent five at the United Nations, admittedly because of the post-war World War II settlement. So, so you know, Britain, Britain is a big international contributor. And also Britain has stood for some very important things in some very dark and difficult parts of the world. Britain has been a, a light shining of hope through our work on human rights and at the United Nations and so forth. A lot of that has gone backwards over the last three and a half years. Let's be clear about that. But my hope is that a Britain, we call it global Britain, and there's not many, there's not much flesh on the bones of that at the moment, apart from in the development sphere. But my hope is that Britain will continue to stand for those things. And through our central part at these many different crossroads around the world, will be able to be a, a profound force for good. I mean, one, one of the issues about this is the breakdown of the international rules-based system, of which Britain has been a tremendous supporter. And the growth of narrow nationalism, which we see from you know Moscow down to Cairo, at a time when all these big problems in the world need more international cooperation. That, after all, was the reason why I voted to remain in the European Union. I thought that was far more important than the European architecture, for which in both my times in government, I developed limited respect only. So I think Britain can make that contribution, and I hope Britain will make that contribution. And in a way, outside of this very uneasy relationship, which throughout its nearly 50 years was always an uneasy relationship, really, outside of it, I hope we can make a stronger and more effective contribution, perhaps, than we've done in the past. The sort of narrow nationalism and the withdrawal of of many countries, including to a large extent the United States, as evidenced by the decreased contribution, specifically to UN peacekeeping operations, is, I think, extremely unfortunate. And I think sort of World War II is becoming a distant memory, and we forget maybe a little bit the reasons for some of this. But I certainly hope the UK continues to play this role in the international stage as well. Do you have any other closing thoughts or words that you'd like to share before we wrap things up? No, it's uh, it's always a pleasure to spend time in Harvard, meet so many utterly brilliant people, and to see in a way in which we also try to emulate in, in, in Britain, in Birmingham and in Cambridge universities, of which I work a bit, but see the power of thinking through these big issues and discussing them in a group of, of, of very gifted and clever young people. Uh, I always find that both humbling and inspiring, and never more so than on this visit. Well, fantastic. Thanks again to Andrew Mitchell for taking the time to talk with us today. And you can find more information about Andrew's work at www.andrew-mitchell-mp.co.uk or by following the Center for International Development at cid.harvard.edu, where you can also learn more about CID's research, events, and upcoming speaker series lectures. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back again next week.